Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our readings for this fourth Sunday of Lent are really magnificent, and they're all about the most important theme there is, which is the divine love. That's the great theme of the Bible, that God is love. And the readings are kind of a, a hymn of praise to the divine love in its various modes. So let me just say this right off the bat. One of the great mistakes we can make in the theological order is to project onto God our way of being and our subjectivity. What I mean is this. We tend to fall in and out of love, being now well-disposed, now ill-disposed now satisfied, now dissatisfied, now content, now angry, etc. We are fickle and vacillating and unreliable in love. But God is not like this. Why? Because God is love, as we hear. He's love right through. More to the point, God is eternal, which implies that he never changes. Therefore, God does not fall in and out of emotional states. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't love and then refuse to love. I'll use a beautiful Old Testament term, chesed, in Hebrew means tender mercy. Beautiful King James rendering of that. That's what God is, period. Chesed, and nothing but chesed. But wait a minute, you might say, doesn't that seem actually a bit unbiblical? I mean, doesn't the God of the Bible indeed appear now content, now angry, etc.? Well, I'd say not quite, and we have to read this thing carefully, seeing it not so much from God's side as from our side. And let me tell you what I'm driving at, and I'll do it by looking at uh, our first reading from the extraordinary book of Chronicles. Take a look at one and two chronicles in your Bible. It's a kind of sweeping history of God's dealings with his people, Israel. The passage we have for today opens with the sin and rebelliousness of Israel after the establishment of the Jerusalem temple. Listen now from Chronicles. In those days, the princes of Judah the priests and the people added infidelity to infidelity, practicing all the abominations of the nations and polluting the Lord's temple. It's bad news. It's a bad time. People behaving badly, their leaders behaving badly, polluting the place of right praise, polluting the Lord's temple. So, how does God respond to this? Listen now as the chronicler speaks. Early And often did the Lord send his messengers for them, 
for he had compassion on his people. Who are these messengers? The prophets, the prophets, whom God sends to bring his errant people back online. He sends them out of love, out of compassion, the Chronicle tells us. So the people are, are sinful, they're unfaithful, but God is faithful. And the expression of it is the sending of the prophets. So, what does Israel do? Listen to the chronicler. They mocked the messengers of God, despised his warnings, and scoffed at his prophets. The love was offered, and the love was refused. There, in a nutshell, is the story of Israel, up and down the Old Testament. The love of Yahweh offered, the love of Yahweh typically refused. So, what did the God of love do? The chronicler again. The anger of the Lord against his people was so inflamed that there was no remedy. Now, I know this sounds like he's fallen out of love, right? I I know it sounds like that. But we can't read God's anger here as a passing emotion. Rather, we have to read it, because we know God is love straight through. We have to read it as a modality of love. That is to say, the passion to set things right. So, he sends the prophets, his first expression of love. Then, then in his anger, he destroys. You see, what is that? Just destruction? No, no. It's his passion to set things right. Sometimes things can get so bad that only drastic measures will do. Only radical surgery sometimes can be really effective. Sometimes only a tearing down and a starting over will work. And this is precisely how ancient Israel read the greatest calamity in its history. And this is what the Chronicle is referring to, namely the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. Now, I know I've talked about this before. The temple in Jerusalem, you'd have to have some combination of the White House, St. Peter's, the Sorbonne, uh, the, the National Gallery. I mean, it was, it was the summation of Israelite cultural, religious, political life. It was everything to them. Moreover, it was the dwelling place of Yahweh himself. And so when that temple was destroyed, it was much more than a mere political issue or a cultural issue or a military issue. It was a theological issue. Because how could the temple of Yahweh, the dwelling place of the God of Israel, be destroyed? Did it mean that God had suspended or withdrawn his love? And the answer of the chronicler, it's very important, is no. Rather, it was construed as a purification. Now, terrible. Yes, the city destroyed, the temple burned down, the people carried off into exile, and they stayed, mind you, in Babylon for 70 years. This was not a brief moment of chastisement. It was a 
long and steady cleansing and purification of Israel. The point is, it was an expression of the divine love. See, and everybody, the question for us is this. How do we read calamities in our own lives? Maybe not something as dramatic as the destruction of the temple was for ancient Israel, but we all experience, every one of us, experience calamity, disaster, terrible things. How do we read them? Just dumb suffering? No, no. A sign that God has abandoned us? God has refused his love? No, no. We should read them, the chronicler suggests, as expressions of the divine anger, which, as I explained, is a modality of God's love. God chastising, cleansing, purifying precisely through this suffering. Okay, the story continues. After the purification, after the 70 years, came the restoration. And it came in the most wonderful way. The Babylonians, who had carried the Jews off into exile and destroyed the holy city, were themselves overrun by the Persians under their king Cyrus. And the Lord, we are told, inspired Cyrus to allow the Jews to return home and to rebuild their temple. How strange and wonderful it occurred to them that the God of Israel used a foreign power to do his work. The prophets expressed his love. The destruction of Jerusalem expressed his love. And the return of the exiles through King Cyrus expressed his love. I know the face of that love changed, but throughout, God was consistently faithful to his people Israel. That's the point. The God who is chesed, tender mercy, right through. But the face of that love can and does change. Now, what is love? everybody, but self-gift. God gives himself in the direction of his people, in the chastising of his people, in the return of his people. God gives himself. Therefore, love will come to its richest expression when God gives all that he can possibly give. When he gives his whole self. Now with that in mind, Let's turn to the gospel, which contains one of the most quoted and beautiful lines in the whole Bible. It's John 3, 16. Listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. We've been hearing about the divine love. Yes, with its changing expressions and changing faces, but the divine love steadily expressed in the history of Israel. But in the fullness of time, God gave all he possibly could. We call this act of love the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. And the incarnation reached its climax on the cross. How come? Because there the Father sends the Son all the way into God-forsakenness in order to lift us up out of the morass, 
Listen now again to John's Gospel. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, in this acrobatic act of love, we are brought to share in the divine life. The divine love, going all the way down, saves us. In light of this, listen now to Paul, our second reading from that magnificent letter to the Ephesians. Listen now to some of these phrases. God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love he had for us, by grace you've been saved, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you see how Paul here is practically falling over himself, trying to sum up or give adequate expression to the love of God. Mercy, love, grace, kindness. The lavishness of God's love. See, that's what they got in Jesus. Paul knew, as all the New Testament writers knew, that the Father, in giving the Son, gave all that he possibly could. Not just direction, not just the prophets, not just the law, not just a cleansing chastisement, not just a gracious restoration. All that was on display. All that was an expression of love. But in the fullness of time, this God who is hesed right through gave his whole self. Everybody, there's the gospel in a nutshell. There's the good news. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.